0: Welcome to The Rabbit Room. I'm Andrew Peterson. For more information about the songs, writers, and artists featured here, please visit rabbitroom.com. Rabbit Room theme song composed and performed by Ben Shive. For the next few episodes of The Rabbit Room Podcast, we'll be hearing those Advent writings from Russ Ramsey, Rabbit Room contributor and pastor at Oak Hills Presbyterian Church in Overland Park, Kansas. salvation is not some academic exercise that is relegated to the mind alone. It's an unfolding story. It's a true tale. It's a tall tale, but it's a true tall tale with heroes and with villains. A story with plot twists, with narrow escapes. It's the story of people living in the land between wandering and homecoming, between transgression and grace. And every mortal human in this story needs to be rescued. And why? Because they've all turned aside and there is none who does good, not even one. Still, with all the intrigue and the conflict and the suspense, this tale is not ultimately a story about mere mortals. It's a story of divine love. The law of the Lord is a love story. It's the story of the one true God who called a people who were in outright rebellion against him, his beloved. And even more, this is the story of God's love for his son, Jesus Christ. God commands his people then to live as Tellers of this story, as storytellers, people telling the story of redemption. And it's a story that begins as far back and even further still as the creation and the fall of man, how the snake came slithering into the garden to tempt Eve and her husband, not just to eat the fruit that God had forbid them to touch, but to really question God's goodness to them in the process. And when they did this, God was there on the scene and he was speaking of consequences and he was speaking of discipline and what was to come. He spoke to the man and the woman that that life would be a struggle as a result of this and of doom to the tempter, that one would come from the woman's line who would crush his head. The Lord showed this couple mercy, Adam and Eve, and though they were cast out of the Garden of Eden forever, they did retain the Lord's call to fill the earth and to subdue it, and this they did, establishing a line from which the Redeemer would come. Tracing Adam's line then down through his son Seth, down then to Noah, the father of the only surviving family of the earth's great flood, continuing on from Noah through his son Shem, we come to Abraham, whom God called to become the father of a great nation through which all the other nations of the earth would be blessed, which is an allusion to Christ's coming. God promised Abraham that Canaan would be the land where he would dwell. And this was hard to imagine, this promise, because Abraham's wife, Sarah, was barren. She was unable to have children. But then through a miracle, a miracle birth, Sarah bore Abraham a son named Isaac. And God told them, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Isaac went on to have Jacob and Esau And with Isaac's blessing on Jacob's line, the Lord changed Jacob's name to Israel. And Jacob had 12 sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. 12 sons who would become the fathers fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. So the Lord's plan is unfolding. Just as he said. And as much as this must have bolstered the faith in Abraham's descendants, it surely also must have carried, it must have carried some measure of apprehension or fear because at one point when Abraham was feeling particularly uncertain about the future, he pleaded with God for assurance that God's promises would be kept. And the Lord replied to Abraham by detailing some of the specifics of what the future would hold. And in that, the Lord said, Know for certain that your offspring will sojourn in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. 400 years of slavery. It was part of God's design for the descendants of Abraham. Now, one might think that a shrewd leader would do anything to avoid this, knowing it's coming, but Abraham's descendants, they never saw it coming. Here's how it happened, this this 400 years of slavery. When Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, when he only had 11 sons... He had one who was a favorite, Joseph. And Joseph's brothers did not like this. And so they tricked him, threw him into a well. Some travelers, some Ishmaelites came along in a caravan and they sold their brother Joseph into slavery for 20 shekels of silver. And the caravan took Joseph to Egypt where he was sold into slavery there. Now, while Joseph was there as a slave in Egypt, he came to be known as a man who was blessed with this vision, the ability to see what God saw. And the king of the land, the Pharaoh, was having nightmares, nightmares about skinny cows, eating fat cows, and he wanted to know, what do these dreams mean? And so he heard about Joseph and he summoned him for an interpretation. And Joseph said, King, this is God's way of warning you of a coming famine. Joseph said he could help prepare for this famine. So Joseph went from being a dungeon-dwelling slave to the ruler in the land, second only to Pharaoh himself, and he saved the kingdom through an aggressive food storage program. Now, the entire region of the world there suffered under this famine, but unlike Egypt, no one else was prepared. People came from all over, hoping for some of Egypt's stores. Joseph's own brothers languished in neighboring nearby Canaan with their aging father, Israel, until at last they too came looking for food. And in a tale of surprise, of reconciliation, of great mercy. Joseph moved his entire family there to live off of the provisions that the Lord had had used him to lay up. So what Joseph's brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. And they were invited to come and to settle in Goshen, which was Egypt's best land and to tend their flocks there and to tend the pharaoh's flocks there as well. Well, when Joseph grew old, he told his brothers, "I'm about to die. But God will visit you, and he will bring you up out of the land, out of this land to the land that he swore to give to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Goshen was not their permanent home. And Joseph said also, When the time comes for you to return and to take the promised land, brothers, take my bones with you. Though Egypt had made this former slave into a prince, it was no more his home than it was his father's. But it wouldn't take some noble, selfless gesture from Joseph himself to drive this point home to his descendants. All it would take to drive this point home, would be a regime change. And now there arose a new king over Egypt who didn't know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty. Let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. And our enemies come to fight us. They will join them and fight us too, and they will escape. So they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And this lasted 400 years. 400 years. Just as God had said. But near the end of those 400 years, for reasons not belonging to political upheaval or Egypt's economy or famine or war, the Lord called another servant from among his people. But this one was strangely, in a way, of the house of Pharaoh himself. Born of parents from the house of Levi, Jacob's third son by Leah, Moses came into this world at a time when the new Pharaoh was trying to curb Israel's population growth by killing newborn sons. So Moses' mother took him, put him in a basket that she had covered in pitch. And then she had Moses' sister float that basket with the baby in it down the river to the place where the Pharaoh's daughter would often bathe. And Pharaoh's daughter found Moses in the basket and she wanted to take him home and to care for him as her own. Moses' sister hiding and watching, seeing The Pharaoh's daughter was drawn to the baby. Well, she came out of hiding to ask if Her Majesty would like for her to find a nurse for him from among the Hebrew women. And she did. And so Moses' sister ran to tell hers and Moses' mother what had happened. And then Moses' mother came on staff in Pharaoh's household to nurse her own son, whose life had been spared by Pharaoh's own daughter. And that's how this little Levite came to be the surrogate grandson of the king of Egypt. Well, he grew up in Pharaoh's house. Once when he was a young man, he saw an Egyptian guard beating and mistreating a Hebrew slave. The conflict. Who was he? And compelled To help his own people, Moses looked this way and he looked that way, and seeing that the coast was clear, he killed the guard. And it was an act that really didn't end up garnering them the respect that he might have hoped for from his Hebrew brothers, but it did send him into exile to escape death at the hands of the king's soldiers. During that time, during those many days of Moses' exile, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. They cried out for help. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. So the Lord called Moses out of exile to return to the land of Goshen to lead Israel out of their slavery and bondage. And Moses knew that this would present two pretty significant obstacles. The first being getting his own people to listen to this Levite of the house of Pharaoh. And second, getting Pharaoh to listen to this murderous traitor of the house of Levi. As for his own people, the Lord said, gather the elders of Israel and say this, the God of your fathers The God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob appeared to me saying, I have seen what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise to bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land that I have promised, the land flowing with milk and honey. And they'll listen to your voice. As for Pharaoh, that was another matter. Israel represented a large and inexpensive workforce And he would not free them willingly. So God systematically peeled back Pharaoh's hold on them one finger at a time by sending 10 plagues upon the land. Moses' heart was hard. And the first nine just couldn't move it. So the last was the worst, the death of the firstborn sons. But the Lord gave to Moses a word for the people. He said their firstborn sons would live to see another day if they put the blood of a lamb on their doorposts when death passed through the land. And the image was clear and it was haunting. The angel of the death would see the blood glistening on the doorposts of the house and would count it as a sign that blood in that house had already been shed that the people in that house had already surrendered to God what the angel had come to collect. Just as the Lord accepted the life of a ram in the thicket in place of Abraham's son Isaac, so now God accepted the blood of a lamb for the blood of the sons of the descendants of Abraham, a life for a life, a life for a life. And God told them, never forget this. It wasn't just that he liberated them from bondage. It was what he was liberating them to, to the land of Canaan, yes, but it was so much more than that. It was this assurance that God was taking them someplace, that after over 100 years of their forefathers wandering and their travels to the promised land, living as nomads, then another 400 years of slavery, God had not forgotten his people. These people were a holy people to the Lord. The Lord, their God, chose them as a people for his treasured possession out of all peoples who are on the face of the earth. So the people of God grew up with this command to tell this story tell this story. The story of the rebellion in the garden, of the devastation of the flood, of the wanderings of the patriarchs and the covenant promises that God cut with them. The story of 400 years of bondage in Egypt and the story of God's holy and sober deliverance that followed. And for what? What was the point? The point was that God had claimed a people as his own a people that he would one day fully redeem and fully restore. This wasn't simply a matter of the divine helping his subjects when they got into scrapes. This was a matter of affection. This was a matter of adoption, of redemption, of salvation. Still imagine how hard it would have been waiting those 400 years. Imagine the question are we forgotten? Is there a God? Imagine how easy it would have been to reduce every facet of existence down to one thing, getting out of Egypt. Well, by the time of Jesus, people had all but forgotten that the covenant Wasn't just about what God would deliver his people from, but it was about what he would call them to. And he was calling them to, to someone, to himself. The call of God on the lives of his people ultimately is to himself. He set his affection on them, he swore to cleanse them. But God also made it clear from the start that the wages of sin is death and so reconciliation would be a bloody business. So he accepted the blood of another in their place. A ram for Isaac, Lambs for the firstborn sons of Israel, and later the Lord would establish this entire sacrificial system by which the people could offer sacrifices to God to atone for their sins. But it was unending. It was unending. When Israel built her temple later, there was no chair for the priest. And the reason was because his work was never finished the line of sacrificial lambs seemed to just stretch on forever. And why? Because no beast of the field could ever be perfect enough to actually take away the sins of an image-bearer of God. Would there ever come then a perfect, lasting, atoning sacrifice One who would take away, take away the sins of the world. Well, if so, that lamb would have to be of God.